Well, good morning, church, and happy Father's Day. Woo! To all the dads at MCC, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for the impact that you make. One of my absolute um, favorite things about being the lead pastor here at McDonough Christian Church is this church from before I got here, and I think even now as I lead it, is a church that is full of some godly men. And I just thank you guys so much for that. Um, as we get ready to talk about lean into two men today, I want us to first kind of pause and just realize and understand how unique it is to be a dad. And even some of the things that we maybe not, you know, always are appreciative, we kind of take for granted. But those things that you remember about dads is that they oftentimes excel at those short little phrases, those kind of dad-isms, those kind of things that honestly, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, that's kind of corny. But I want to see if you had a dad, maybe like I did, or a granddad, maybe like I did, and you can fill in and know what dad says when these things happen. When certain things happen, you just know that a dad is going to say these certain things. So let's have a little fun, crowd participation here, see if you can know. All right. When a dad hears a police siren somewhere, what does a dad say? They look around to the people they're with and they say, they're coming for you, <laughs> all right? All right. What does a dad say when he gives a kid a dollar? Just all dads say it, let me know. Don't spend it all in one place, all right? You guys had a dad like mine, good job. All right, so you're with your dad, you're at the grocery store or gas station or whatever, and they're trying to scan the item, whatever you're trying to buy, and it just won't scan. What does the dad say? Looks like it's free, right? Yep, bingo. What does the dad say when literally anything breaks? Car, remote, anything. What does the dad say when something breaks? They don't make them like they used to. Exactly. When somebody in their family or at work gets a haircut, what does the dad say? Looks like you got your ears lowered. Yep, y'all know that one. All right, here's one that I like happens at our house now. I didn't think this would be me, but it totally happened um, recently, and I was like, oh man, I'm becoming a full-blown official dad. What does a dad say when somebody changes the channel or changes what's on TV while the dad is napping? What do they say when they wake up? I was watching that. Exactly. What does a dad say when he sees a cow laying down in the field? That's ground beef. <laughs> this, this, was, this was one that was definitely specific to my dad, and now my sons do it as well. Riding by a cemetery, what does a dad ask? It's just my dad on this one. Do you know how many people are dead in there? And then my kid in the back seat, oh, uh, 500? All of them, yeah. And what, this is the classic one, everybody should be good to go on this. What does almost any dad say when any kid asks him anything? What does a dad say? Go ask your mother, yeah, exactly. You guys had dads like I did. So um, I love Father's Day. It used to honestly be a day where I probably like some of you, and I, if you're here and this is kind of where you're at, where Father's Day was a, definitely a mix of emotions for me. There are many times where I just chose to not go to church on Father's Day. I'd go fishing or go do literally anything else because um, I was unhappy about the relationship I had with my own earthly father. And um, for many of you in this room, I know that that is a, uh, a deep aspect of a day like this, but I love Father's Day as a church family because it reminds us that one, we have a amazing heavenly father and two, it reminds us, and this is one of the things that I am so incredibly grateful for, that there are men of God at the church who can be father figures for those of us who didn't have them. For any kid who's growing up um, who doesn't have a father figure in the home, this is why we need men of God leading in children's ministry and student ministry. And praise God, we do have some of that happening for us as a church. Um, both of my boys, uh, they only get one granddad uh, and normally they're supposed to get uh, some more in their life. But I praise God that here at McDonough Christian Church, they've got at least five or six guys who are granddad figures in their life. And um, just for a second, as I pause and talk about the impact that MCC has on my family, I just wanna tell you guys, thank you. Uh, Father's Day is a special day for me, very much so now. Um, this marks my four years as your pastor, what? That's crazy. Um, 
<laughs> You're clapping. That's, that's a good sign, I guess. Um, that's, that's good. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, uh, I was not expecting that. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So yeah, four years, and I just want to tell you, like, I know from time to time people come up to me and they'll say, you know, we're, you're so thankful you're here, blah, 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 or, you know, not blah, 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 like, that's just, they'll say those things, and I really do mean those things. Um, they'll say a lot of things, and a lot of things after that, and, and, and those are great, and I love being able to hear that, but, but hopefully, if you're one of those people who's told me, hey, we're so thankful you're here, blah, 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 you've, you've heard me on my end, turn around and go, you have no idea how thankful I am for MCC, the people who have ever said, you're a gift to this church. Hopefully you've heard me say, and if you have it, you're hearing it now. You guys are a gift to me and my family. Uh, we would not be where we are and who we are without a blessing of a church like y'all MCC. So thank you from the Shoemaker family. All right, enough of that mushy stuff. Let's grab our Bibles. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter six, definitely not mushy passage. So get ready to... Oh, the, to quote Jurassic Park, uh, hold on to your butts. Um, <laughs> you know that scene? Uh, that's a good one. Samuel L. Jackson with an eye patch. Does he have? He doesn't have an eye patch in that. That's Avengers. Anyway, it's Father's Day. I'm having fun. Let's go. Hebrews chapter six. This is the word of God. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Verse three, and this we will do if God permits. Verse four is really what I want to lean into, what the pastor of the church of Hebrews is doing here. He's saying, guys, we got to take this foundation that's been laid and move on into a place of maturity. Things are going to get harder for us from here. And so we've got to make sure that we are ready and able to handle so that we can show to have saving faith and persevering faith. So we've got to grow up and mature. And now in verse four, he issues a very hard warning. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Then after giving them this warning that there can be people who see and experience and taste of the goodness of God. And yet after having seen all of those things and experiencing those things, if they fall away, he's saying it is impossible for someone who's seen and experienced the goodness of God and experienced the blessing of his word, experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, experienced this gift that is from God. It's impossible for someone who's experienced that to then fall away. It's impossible for them to be Restored. So he's making that point, which again, that's a really big point. We leaned into that last week. If you got a lot of questions around verses four, five, and six, I'd highly encourage, go back and listen to what we talked about last week. It's not a prerequisite for hearing what we're gonna hear today, but it will help you understand this really eye-opening and sometimes confusing passage. So he knows that they're gonna be a little bit kind of all over the place on like, what do you really mean right there? And what the pastor to the church of Hebrews does is he uses creation to give them an illustration of what he's actually talking about. Verse seven, this is where that happens and we're gonna lean into this a lot today. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Saying, okay, so let's talk about soils. So both types of soils, one gets rain, falls down on the soil, soil is cultivated and the soil bears fruit and God says that is blessed. Now, verse um, eight, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. He goes on from there. He gives them this metaphor and he explains that there's two soils. Rain's gonna fall on both of them. One of them is gonna be cultivated and gonna bear fruit. One is not gonna be cultivated. It's gonna bear thorns and thistles. One is gonna be blessed by God and one is gonna be cursed by God. Then he goes on and he gets a little bit more encouraging to the church he's talking to in verse nine. He said, though we speak this way, yet in your case, he's saying, I wanna to talk to you guys specifically now. Beloved, we feel sure of better things, like better than being cursed and burning forever in hell. Like that's the better things he's talking about there. Things that belong to salvation, which 
Again, equals not burning in hell, which again, really good thing. For God is not unjust so that to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Saying God sees your earnestness. God sees your work. God sees the way you put your faith into action. He says, and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope to the end. He's saying, I want you to be assured and hopeful that this God sees the faith that you have and that faith is saving faith because that faith is an earnest faith that perseveres and lasts to the end. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray that as we lean into it, it would become living and active in our lives. It would actually be something that that transitions us out of our old way of thinking into a new way of thinking and a new way of being from the inside out. Your word is the only thing that is capable of doing that. Best help, novels and books on this and um, good talks around how to uh, practice things and do things differently. It's not gonna change the wicked and deceitful heart of man. It is only the power displayed by the gospel, through the gospel, in the gospel, to our lives, that we will be any different and any better. And so I pray that regardless of if someone showed up today doubting, confused, wondering, is this faith thing um, just fake or unreal? or if somebody showed up here today desperately looking for answers from you, I pray that they're able to hear from you today. Move me out of the way. I don't wanna get in the way of what you're trying to say to them. And pray today, Jesus, those who are comfortable, maybe you would make them a little bit uncomfortable. And those who are hurting, those who feel afflicted, that you would comfort them and meet them right where they are and let them experience the love of the Father today of all days on Father's Day. In your name, amen. All right, so he leans into these two soils and I wanna take us back here so we can kind of go through it word by word, verse by verse. He says, the land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Again, we lean into that word cultivated heavily last week, saying rain comes down. But if rain just comes down and no cultivation, no toil, no till, no tilling of the soil actually happens, it's not, it's not gonna do anything or produce anything worth value. The rain has to meet the work that it takes to harvest good fruit. It has to be cultivated. He says, when that happens, it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless. Now, last week we talked about this as Southerners. We know this to be true. What, does, what do you have to do, in the South at least, to get thorns and thistles in your yard? Absolutely nothing. The reason that they just pop up and exist, weeds, thorns, thistles, is because of Genesis 3. There's a curse on the ground. It was really easy for Adam to go out and do the gardening and the farming and produce for his family and provide for his family. But because of the curse, because of the fall, it gets much harder. Thorns come up. You have to fight those things. There is an active enemy working against good fruit to be born. So he makes this obvious here and he is explaining here. There's two soils. He even simplifies down Jesus' analogy where he talked about there's four different types of souls. And he says, really, at the end of the day, there's two. And rain falls down, the goodness, the supplication from God, the grace of God falls on both of them. Yet one bears fruit and the other does not. Bears thorns and thistles. One is blessed by God. One is cursed by God. Now, remember, he's not just talking about horticulture here. He's talking about people. And when you think, when we think about two types of people, maybe even two individuals that we see in scripture that embody this passage, two individuals who received the rain that was a relationship with Jesus, right up close and personal, seeing and experiencing who he was, what he was doing, experienced miracles right in front of their face, experienced word of God being preached to them, experienced all these things. Yet at the same time, one had a destination that ended up being hell and one had a destination that ended up being heaven. What two people come to your mind? The two people I wanna to talk to you today are about two of Jesus' apostles, the apostle Peter and the apostle Judas. Two guys who, if we look at their story, we see represented these two soils. 
At first glance, we can look at these two guys and Peter and Judas, and people name their kids after Peter, but I don't know of anybody who's naming their kid Judas. And if you do, bless your heart, as we would say in the South, uh, you're setting that kid up for um, a long, hard life. It's a boy named Sue type of thing if you're going to name him Judas. So... We have these two guys, and at first glance, we can think, okay, well, Peter's obviously the good guy. He's like a saint, you know, and stuff, and he's got cathedrals and everything else. Peter's good, Judas is bad. But remember what we talked about last week. There was this Passover dinner that Jesus was having the night he was getting ready to be betrayed. And as the whole mission of Jesus is getting ready to hit this climax moment, they're having this Passover dinner, and this is how the scene unfolds. In Matthew 26, as they were eating, he, that's Jesus, said, truly I say to you, and he's talking to his whole room of people, his whole group of apostles here, one of you will betray me. Not one of the Pharisees, not one of the Sadducees, not one of the scribes, not some Roman centurion guy. One of you guys, my inner circle is gonna betray me. And this is what they respond as. It says, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? So we see this passage. And what we don't see in this story is Jesus sitting there going, one of you guys is gonna betray me. And then all the apostles immediately going, ooh, it's Judas, we know, we knew. Thank you, Jesus, for telling you know, clarifying that for us, told you. You don't see that happen. What you see is everybody in the story asking the question, when Jesus says, somebody's gonna betray me, everybody is humble enough to go, is it me? Now, that question is it me, Lord? Is it I, Lord? I believe is the pastor to the church in Hebrews whole point in writing Hebrews chapter six. Not to scare us out of our salvation, but to make us fervent in our salvation. He writes Hebrews chapter six so that we would ask the same question that the disciples asked right here. When you see this thing about this person who experienced all these good things of God, yet fell away and was not able to be restored, he is wanting us to read that, read through Hebrews six and go, is this passage talking about me? Like, am, am I in danger of this? See, because you have these two guys and Peter and Judas. And they experienced so much of the goodness of God. And that's really what this whole passage in Hebrews is about. But what we see is right after Jesus says, one of you is gonna betray me. And the whole collection of the apostles in the room, they go, is it me, Lord? Jesus says these words. Who, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. What this means is that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee an eternity with Jesus. Now that should again be some of what causes our eyes to open. And even when you know like historically what's happening right here when he's like, hey, the one who dips his hand in the bowl, like sometimes we can see that story and we think it's like four people at a Mexican restaurant and everybody's got the salsa in the middle. And it's like, oh, well, it could have been one of the three guys. The way they would have eaten this Passover meal, likely they would have eaten it kind of laying out like this, all right? This is how they reclined. They didn't have a whole lot of tables and chairs. You had to be like baller status to have chairs and tables in your house. So not a lot of tables and chairs going on. They're probably laying on cushions. They're just kind of relaxing like this and eating. And they would kick their feet out. Feet are unclean and nasty and stinky because they walk everywhere they go. And you would shoot those out. And then likely... Judas is here with his feet shooting out this way. Same thing like when you go to a Mexican restaurant and you've got like 12 people there, like is in the story. What do you, how many salsas do you hope they bring to the table? At least more than one, right? You, you hope you got one per, per you, six, you know? Like I, me and you, this is our salsa, dude. Let's get this. Like that's how you want it to be. And that's essentially what's happening here. So what they would do is they would have their bread and then they would have their, their bowl of wine. And in order to make the, the bread a little bit more easy to digest and I guess flavorful as well, they would dip the bread in the wine and then eat it together. And what I believe if you're able to see this scene is Jesus laying out like this, Judas laying right there. And he says, one of you guys is gonna betray me. And everybody's laying there eye level with each other. And they're going, is it me? Is it me? And then Jesus looks around and he goes, the one who dips his bread in the bowl with me is the one who will betray. (laughs) 
I mean, see the scene, guys. Like, that's, that's wild. And, and other gospel accounts show us this, this, this moment now where, where, where this, from that moment forward, Judas leaves the room. This is like his exit. Uh, oh, no, <laughs> it should have been, obviously. Like, he leaves there in that moment. And again, I, I'm showing you and telling you this because proximity to Jesus does not guarantee an eternity with Jesus, and his story shows it. Now, you can tend to go, okay, well, that's just Judas, and he was just a big sinner against Jesus. But when you look at the story of Judas and Peter, what you see is both of them fall drastically. Both Peter and Judas hit this moment where they're at the climax of Jesus' life. They're at this moment where he needs them. They're at this moment where he is doing everything he can to tell them and prepare them what's coming. And both of these men, Peter and Judas, both fall. Both of these guys are men who have heard nearly every lesson Jesus has ever given. Both of these men are guys who have seen Jesus miraculously heal dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people. Both of these men are guys who have seen Jesus resurrect Lazarus after three days dead when he stinketh. They have seen these things. On top of all of that, they've heard his teaching. They don't just see the things that he's done. They've heard the teaching about the kingdom of God. They've heard teaching about fear of man. They've heard teaching about the love of money. And one of the key teaching, I think this foundational for both these guys, was this story that Jesus taught them called the prodigal son. The story that Jesus tells of this younger brother who asked for his full inheritance and goes and wastes it in the far country. And in their mind, they're thinking that kid should be killed for what he did to his father. He deserves to be cursed. And then they hear, hear Jesus tell the story of this son coming back and the father welcoming him in with open arms and throwing a party, putting a ring and a robe and kissing the son and throwing this giant party for this kid. And he's trying to explain to them in the kingdom of God, that is what the father is like that there is no sin that outweighs the level of grace that he's willing to give. They hear all this from Jesus. Yet both fail. Jesus is three years into his messianic mission. Everything hits ahead and we see Peter deny Jesus and we see Judas betray Jesus. Now, my opinion on this is, is both of these, in, in varying ways, are betrayals. Peter's betrayal is a much more passive betrayal. It is a denial that I know this Jesus. It's a denial that he is a part of me. It is a denial that I know, recognize, and love and care for this person, and I'm gonna back away and park away from my relationship with this savior when maybe there is something I could do to intercede or intervene. It is an abandoning. It is borderline even contempt to say, I don't know him. And then Judas obviously is a positive, proactive betrayal, intentional plots, plans, schemes. It's first degree murder. And these are these guys now, when you look at these guys' story, what distinguishes one from the other cannot be that one was a sinner who made a really big mistake and one was not. Because it isn't that Judas sinned and Peter didn't. That's not what we see in the story. They both fell. The good fruit of Peter, to go back to reference Hebrew 6, you know, it talks about rain falls on both soils and one bears up good fruit and God sees and is blessed. The good fruit cannot be sinlessness because we see a multitude of sins in Peter's life as we have his story in the gospels. But at the same time, Judas's sinfulness cannot be what we label as thorns and sisals. So if that's not the difference, what is the distinct fruit of salvation that verse seven is actually talking about? What is the distinct fruit of salvation that God looks at in humans' lives and goes, I see that, and I bless that. What is the fruit that proves that you are actually saved? If you look at the story of Judas and Peter, the thing that proves that you are saved is not your sinfulness and it is not your sinlessness. The thing that proves that you are saved and you have saving, enduring faith is this thing called repentance. 
Repentance is at the heart of what is different about these two. And my hope is to spend the rest of our time showing you the heart of repentance. Look at verse, uh, Hebrews 6, 4. We actually see this in the verse. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of this age to come, and then fallen away, lean in here, to restore them again to repentance. Now look at what he does not say. He says, he doesn't say it's impossible to restore them to faith. It's impossible to restore them to a relationship with the heavenly father. It's impossible to restore them into grace, mercy. He says, none of those things. Here's why. Repentance precedes all of those things. Before there's grace, there's repentance. Before there's faith, there's repentance. That repentance is the, we're gonna get into the word, might as well go ahead and go there. Repentance is metanoia. It is a change of mind. It's a change in the inner man. When that repentance occurs, now my mind, my inner self, who I am and what I thought to be true about Jesus, that has now miraculously been changed and I'm repenting of what I've done, what I've believed, and I'm turning because my insides have now turned, transformed, and changed. Old Testament repentance, you've probably heard it talked about like this. When you hear about repentance, most of us, when we've been taught repentance in our life, we think, oh, repentance just means make that 180 about face change and go a different direction. And the Hebrew word for repentance in the Old Testament does totally mean that. But when you read the New Testament, the Greek word that Jesus used, that Pastor Paul uses, that the book of Hebrews uses, that word is not the same implication. That word implies not an outward directional change. It implies an inward change in the inmost parts of who you actually are. It is a change on the inside, a change in your mind that changes what you actually do. That's what this repentance is all about. And both of them, both Judas and Peter, had a moment where it looks like they repented. But the question is, was it for both of them repentance? They had this moment where they recognized their sin. For Peter, it was that moment when the rooster crowed. You know the story, Luke twenty-two fifty-nine. 59. It says, and after an interval, about an hour, still another one insisted. This is somebody, this is now the third person who's came up and going, bro, I'm pretty sure you do know Jesus. I think you're lying. The person comes up and goes, certainly this man also was with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, this is actually translated better as a cuss word. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. It's like, I don't, I don't know. Which is, which is baseline equivalent of, of Peter going, I have no idea or recollection. This person you're talking about doesn't even register in my mind. And if there's, Anything to say that that's contempt, I don't know what that is. They don't register to me. They're nothing to me. I don't know who or what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, couldn't even get the words out of his mouth, the rooster crowed. And Peter told him this was gonna happen. Because in that same night where they're all sitting down reclining, Jesus tells him that he's gonna be betrayed, he's gonna be handed over to authorities. And I believe Peter stands up as everybody's kind of sitting there on the ground. Peter stands up and says, Lord, all these guys, they'll betray you, not me, I got you. <laughs> and for a little while, even in the garden, we see him, I got you. He pulls out a sword, he misses the guy's head because he's a fisherman and cuts his ear off. Jesus is like, Peter, I'm always having to clean up after you. Puts the guy's ear back on, pretty cool story. But he tells them all this. And in that moment, before all the ear cutting off stuff happens, Jesus goes, no, Peter, you're gonna be sifted but I've prayed for you and you're not gonna fall away. But this very night before the, uh, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, what's heartbreaking is the details that Luke gives us in Peter's denial. Luke 22 says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So you have Peter, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and immediately following, you see Jesus turn and look over his shoulder and lock eyes with the man who with all pride and confidence, cockiness in his heart said, I will never, ever betray you, Jesus. Lock eyes with Jesus. And how else is he supposed to interpret that look other than I told you so? And it says, Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. 
so that's how we see Peter have this moment where he is fully aware of how much he has blown his relationship with Jesus. Now, let's talk about Judas. Judas also has one of these moments where he understands and he feels regret over what has happened. Matthew 27 gives us the details. It says, then when Judas, his betrayer, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Uh-oh, is that metanoia? Well, let's see. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. If you've got a Bible, please underline that word. See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went away and hanged himself. See, Jesus was led out of Caiaphas' temple with the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests, those guys all around him. Judas sees this happen and knows in this moment, oh no, they're actually going to kill him. And then this immense regret falls upon Judas and he's like, oh, I've got to undo what I just did. And he tries to fix it. Now, I, along with many other scholars and theologians have, have contemplated and thought and processed through what in the world led to Judas betraying Jesus. Some people, I feel like take an easy way out and just go, uh, well, the Bible says that Satan entered into him. So it was just all Satan and they make it all about Satan. Some people have a different opinion on that. They would say that this is a long progression of Jesus not being the savior and Messiah that Judas wanted him to be. And when Judas realized that he couldn't get from Jesus what he wanted to get from Jesus, he was willing to betray Jesus. Now, for those of you who are like, why in the world though? That's a lot, man. Why can't you just like go find somebody else to hang out with? Why do you have to you know, have this guy killed? Like just move on, that's harsh. Well, here's why. What was Judas? What was his job? What, what was his role amongst the disciples? The treasurer, all right? So we're talking about a guy who likely has an accounting background. He works with money. That's his role. That's his job. Now, what has he done to become a disciple? He's gotten rid of his entire nest egg. He's left the family business. He's no longer doing that. His, his assets were completely liquidated. Most of the disciples sold everything that they had, left everything that they had, and went and spent this three-year journey following Jesus. So we're likely talking about a guy who was probably very wealthy, who is now sitting on zero. And coming to this point in realization that this Messiah it's not gonna pan out like I thought it would. Now, most Jews, when they thought, what is this Messiah, this savior gonna be like? They were thinking this is going to be a make Jerusalem great again savior. This is gonna be somebody who's gonna come and set up a kingdom like King David. We're talking brand new palaces. We're talking these Romans who used to rule and reign over us. Now we're squishing them under our feet. We are the top dogs. We are the country that everybody fears. We're the people everybody fears. This idea of Jesus being a suffering servant and starting a kingdom of God that is built in spiritual warfare, not a kingdom of God that looks like it's being built on human warfare, was very contrary to the messianic purpose that they all had in their mind. And so Judas goes, this isn't going like I thought it would. I'm going to try to have my exit strategy set up and I'm going to be able to turn tail and run and get something out of it. Now, this is the one that I think is actually his real reason for betraying Jesus. I believe Judas wanted to force Jesus' hand. And the reason I say that I think that's where he was because many times that's what I do too. I believe he may have been very close to full, real faith in Jesus. I do think he was confused about who Jesus would actually be. But I think in trying to hand him over to these officials, he's going, okay, Jesus, you're gonna overthrow these people. We're gonna set up this new kingdom. You keep talking about kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, okay? Well, I'm gonna let you be captive. I'm gonna let you get captured so that you have to kind of be like Superman in the phone booth and kind of take off the, you know, the, the outfit and reveal the S on your chest or die. And what happens is Jesus doesn't do what Judas wants the Savior to do. 
And when Judas realizes that Jesus won't bend to his plans, that he tried to force Jesus's hand, instead Jesus gives both of his hands to be crucified and led out to go do that, Judas realizes my plan to force his hand failed. And it didn't work. And that's why I think he he gets to this place where he's going, oh my goodness, he's condemned. He's being let out and he changes his mind. He says, he brings back the 30 pieces of silver. He takes them to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned by betraying, keyword there, innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? See to it yourself, which is their way of saying, if you did this, why don't, if you've got a problem between you and this guy, why don't you fix it yourself? Which is the most hellfire lie that you could ever hear. You got a problem between you and God, fix it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. See, the truth here, guys, is sin always costs. You've had a moment like this. I've had moments like this where you fully realize the thing that you traded for Jesus is nowhere near as worthy of Jesus whether that's a fleeting pleasure, whether that's a job with a little bit more money, whether that's a simple relationship, whether it's taking some approval that you knew didn't belong to you, whether it's uh, keeping the peace by telling some cowardly little lies, whether it's some fleeting success, you see what you've traded for Jesus and you want to have a refund moment because you realize that it does not compare to him. And this money that Judas wants so badly now becomes what he wants to get rid of so desperately. You ever found yourself in that place? That thing that you wanted so bad, you get it. And as soon as you get it, you realize it's not what you wanted and you want to give it back so desperately. Because many times what we give up to get the one thing we want more than Jesus, eventually, whether it has now or it will soon, it will show itself to be nothing compared to him. So what are we seeing here in Judas? Because on the surface, guys, this really looks like repentance, right? But my, my question to you is, is this repentance or is this just regret? What I see happening here, I don't believe is full-blown repentance. Even though it says he changed his mind, I don't think that's he's changed his mind. It's like, I've changed my mind. My inmost being about who I believe Jesus to be has changed. I, he's like, I changed my mind because now I realize that this sin is gonna cost me, that this sin didn't do what I thought it was gonna do, that my plan didn't go as planned. What I see happening here is not repentance. What I believe is happening is regret. I believe what's happening is what you see the pastor Paul talk about in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, for godly, godly grief is godly mourning and sorrow over your sin. That produces repentance. And that leads to salvation without what? No regret. I've confessed, I'm forgiven. I have mourned over this, been heartbroken over this, but because I know I'm forgiven of this, I have no regrets anymore. Whereas worldly grief, this worldly, oh, I feel bad because I got caught. I feel bad because my sin's costing me, not because my sin cost him. That grief, that produces only death. Now, the great danger is that there is a kind of weeping, a kind of mourning, that looks awfully like repentance, but it's not. It's like when you first see the sprout coming up out of the ground of these soils and you look at one and you're like, oh, that looks really good. And you look at the other and you're like, oh, that looks really good. But because it's so preliminary, you can't tell which one's a thorn and sistle and you can't tell which one is fruit. But it will prove itself to be true which is why I think we as people have got to be sharp on the difference between repentance and regret. And the great danger is for many, many of us have just experienced regret all the while thinking it is true, authentic repentance. Now, in regards to these two things, I wanna ask you, how does sin make you feel? Have you had a moment like these two men and Judas and Peter where you have crumbled under the weight of your sin? And then if you have crumbled under the weight of your sin, you have felt that grief over what your sin, not just what it cost you, but what it cost Jesus. What have you done with that? Where have you gone with that? 
Because I believe that's the difference between regret and repentance. And you can find out whether or not it is the other based off of not, is this bad? Do I feel bad about this? You determine if it's real repentance based off of where you go to deal with it. We see this in Judas's life. Where did Jesus, or where did Judas go to repent? I'll show you the passage. Then when Judas his betrayer, saw Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. You'll determine whether or not your repentance is real based off of where you go with it. Judas does not go to Jesus. Judas goes to chief priests and elders in his attempt to make things right. Now, you can read this the same way I used to read this without really knowing the map of what's going on here. And you go, well, that makes sense, Trent. Like Jesus is kind of busy right now. You know, he's getting like, getting ready to go be crucified. And, and sometimes you can read the story. And if you don't know the timeline of what's happening, you can think Jesus is already like getting flogged. He's already getting you know, nailed up to the cross. If you don't know the timeline of what's actually happened here, you miss out on how significant it is that he goes to chief priests instead of going to the great high priest, Jesus. I want to show you a map. This is kind of this Kidron Valley area where the temple would have been, Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. That's number six, where you see the little cross out there. And I wanna tell you where Jesus is at in this moment. Number two, that's the palace of the high priest. The high priest at that time was a guy named Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. If you go through and you read the gospels, it makes it explicitly clear that they arrest Jesus out of the garden of Gethsemane and they take him bound with some Romans and the Sanhedrin, which is this group that's kind of like the Senate. It's like a lot of guys who, are, who represent religious authority in the area. They take Jesus to Caiaphas' house because they need the high priest to give his stamp of approval on the crucifixion of Jesus. And all of this is happening between like 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. It's all happening in the middle of night. Caiaphas had this giant palace. Inside of Caiaphas' palace, imagine a big giant square. On the outside of the square is the houses and the rooms and those are where those things are at. Inside Caiaphas' square that is his big palace are probably multitude of courtyards. This is where Peter out in this courtyard is warming his hand. He has entered into the palace region or into the Caiaphas palace. He's there in the courtyard warming his hands as he's probably seeing Jesus on the other end of the courtyard huddled together with the high priest and the Sanhedrin and their fake trial is going on out there in the courtyard. While this is happening, I believe Judas is likely outside of that. I don't think he would have dared gone into Caiaphas' thing if he knew Peter with his sword out, still ready to cut ears off, was hanging out in there with him. I believe Judas is somewhere on the outside because remember, and this is where my theory goes back to Judas trying to force Jesus' hand to reveal the S on his chest. He gets him arrested and he's sitting back on the outside somewhere between number two and number three on this path, and I'll tell you what number three is in a second. I believe he's somewhere on that path, sitting and waiting to hear like an earthquake or a ground rumble and to see this Jesus bust forth and this, this big light come down from heaven and be like, yes, hero Jesus flying around on a cape, getting ready to overthrow everything that is the Roman government. But instead, he sees a suffering savior. Judas, I believe is somewhere in between numbers two and three. Number three right there is the place, that's, that's a, another palace, that is where Pontius Pilate would have been. That's where Pontius Pilate resided during this Passover festival. In order for Jesus to be crucified, two people had to sign off on his crucifixion. The Jewish people had to say, yes, this man needs to be crucified in order for the crucifixion to actually go through. Pontius Pilate had to agree with that as well. So once the Jews at place number two go, yep, we should crucify him. He's condemned in that moment to go back to the passage there. And they lead him from number two to number three. I don't see this happening any other way than Judas being somewhere on that red line. Go backwards one. I think I can go backwards. Yeah. Somewhere on that red line, he saw that Jesus was condemned. And this is when he's got cuffed behind his back. He's got everybody behind him. I don't know if he whispers or hears somebody saying that. I don't know what's going on in that moment. 
But when you see Judas, go and try to make it right. Don't get this image in your head of Jesus somewhere else. There's no way he was somewhere else. Jesus is right there on the path, but instead of going to the feet of Jesus and, and, and bowing down in humble reverence and going, Savior, Messiah, I, I thought I was trying to do something that would make this kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, but I was so incredibly long. Can you please forgive me? Can you please forgive me? Can you please forgive me? I believe in that moment, Jesus would have locked eyes with him in the very same way that he locked eyes with Peter and said, son, I forgive you, but this cup will not pass me. And he would continue to walk to Golgotha. But instead of going to Jesus, Judas went to the high priest, which again is no coincidence. The one of the things that the pastor to the church of Hebrews continues to do over and over and over again is say, Jesus is the great high priest. Because he knows how these Jews are gonna have such a hard time continuing to want a man to intercede with them between God. And he's saying, no man can cut it. That's why God had to become man. He is the great high priest. He is Jesus. And Judas Judas had regret and Judas had remorse, but I believe Judas did not have repentance because true repentance is found with a humble repenter at the feet of the Savior. It's found at Jesus' feet. Now, let's talk about Peter for a second. Where did Peter go? What you don't see, first of all, is any sort of story or collection of, of verses that say, when Peter wept out, went bitter, or, or went out, wept bitterly, and then went back into the palace and found those three people he denied Jesus in front of, and was like, "Bro, I'm so sorry. I really do know that guy. I was, I was just just messing around with you know, like you. Hey, where's that little girl? She was mouthy. She kind of had an attitude. She kept bothering me. Can can anybody find me that little girl? She, she was what? Way past her bedtime. Somebody needs to pay attention to that. Like, then none of that happens in the story. What you see is Jesus, Peter goes out and is just completely, utterly depressed, weeps bitterly, and you see him become a shell of the man that he is." until one day shows up, Mary and a couple of other Marys and the Lady Salome, they go out to try to help Jesus' body be prepared for, or finish being prepared and embalmed for the burial. He's, he's in the tomb. They're going out to try to you know, go do all that. And they realize that he's risen, Easter Sunday. Woo, woo, woo. And so they take off, they sprint back to where the apostle John and Peter are at. And they tell these guys, hey, he's not here, he's risen. And I don't even know if, if Peter fully believed that Jesus had been risen, but he knows like, okay, if he really is risen, I messed up big time. And if he's alive, man, goodness gracious, I gotta have something, we gotta have some stuff in our relationship fixed and worked out. And so they sprint to where he was buried. And the apostle John, I don't know if he's just kind of cocky, he, he, he lets us know. And John, he said, and the apostle Jesus love got there before Peter. Like he makes everybody know, like I'm faster. Uh, Peter is slow. Um, but then I love what he does. He also writes John chapter 21. If you got a Bible, John 21 is my absolute favorite chapter in all of scripture. John 21, I believe Peter is a shell of the man that he is because he knows something is still broken between him and Jesus, but he knows because he's seen him walk into rooms and he's seen all this other stuff happen. John 21, Peter knows that Jesus is alive, that he's resurrected. But he also knows while Jesus has been resurrected, he has not repented to Jesus. Things are messed up between him and Jesus. And they're out there fishing, and they catch zero fish. And they're on the shores. And right back to where it started from with Peter and Jesus. Jesus says, hey, um, y'all call anything? Nobody recognizes them at this point. They're like, no. He says, throw the other side. And they catch a miraculous catch of fish. At that moment, when they're reeling the fish in, pulling up the nets, Peter, aha moment. Oh, my goodness, that's actually Jesus. Throws on his outer garments and just cannonballs into the water, swims as fast as he can, gets to the shore, falls down at his feet and meets Jesus again because this is a man that knew, I have messed up and what do I do when I mess up? What do I do? What proves that my, say, my faith is saving faith is that I have repentance. How do I know that repentance is real? It's based off of who I go to try to make it right between me and God. Do I go try to work it out with man? Do I go try to bargain and try to get the scales to tip back? And do I go try to get refunds and go, hey, you have this $30, will that make things right? No, there's no amount of money that you could ever give that will repay the sin that you committed. That's why Jesus comes and he pays it all by the power of his blood. And there's no coincidence that there on the seashore, Jesus looks Peter in the eyes three times and asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me?
see. There is an eternity's worth of difference between these two men and the two soils they represent. And you can see the difference between saving faith and faith that cannot be saved and who they repented to and how they dealt with what they had done wrong. Now, there's still this big question out there. When it comes to Judas, we go, well, when did he cross that line to where he could not be restored back into saving relationship with Jesus? Well, was it when he sinned once and didn't repent the right way? Was it the third, fourth time? When, when did it happen when, Peter, or when Judas crossed the line where he could not come back? What we know about Jesus is that Jesus saw everything that Judas did. And I believe that was probably one of the most heartbreaking things that Jesus had to actually endure was the sins he knew Judas was committing that Jesus wasn't repenting of. In John chapter 12, there's this little story of this lady named Mary, Mary Magdalene. She's a servant slave in this house. Jesus enters into this house and she begins to take an alabaster uh, jar of perfume and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. She's crying and weeping and she's anointing Jesus in this moment. And John 12 tells us that they're all kind of sitting around and Judas especially looks and goes, why would she do this? That, he sees the retail value of the oil and goes, man, we, well, his heart goes, bro, that's a lot of money, man. I wish I had some of that. I could sell that. I could flip that on eBay. Like he's thinking all these things. But what he says is, because you gotta stay holy. You gotta fake that, that, you gotta have that fake faith. He says, oh, if we could have just sold that and given the money to the poor, how much more people would have been helped? which sounds really good and spiritual on the outside, which I would just be careful. Sometimes the most spiritual sounding people in the room are not. He says all that. And then the gospel of John gives us commentary of why he said that. It tells us the whole reason he's saying this is because he had been stealing money habitually from the money bag because he's the treasurer. So what he's done, track with me here, because this has been my story. This may have been your story too. He has dealt and he has created a habit of not repenting to Jesus. And this is where you being someone who goes to church, let's just have a real conversation. This is where you being someone who goes to church is really dangerous for you. Because what happens when you come to church, what happens when you hear the gospel, what happens when you read your Bible is you have a head-on encounter with truth that you are held accountable for. And to have heard the truth, to have heard the goodness of the gospel, to experience all the things that Hebrews 4, 5, and 6 talks about, the goodness of God, the fellowship of the believers, all of these things, and to still go, I'm gonna be hard-hearted, not repent, continue to do what I wanna do, and fake the faith, say outwardly like Judas, oh, we could have given that to the poor and continue to put on a religious fraud. What is happening is the most dangerous game a Christian can play. One where I am simultaneously feeding my flesh and simultaneously turning down and starving the spirit inside of me. And what Hebrews 6 tells us is that there in fact is a line that you can cross where the Holy Spirit of God will say, no more from this moment forward. I'm done warning you. You don't want to surrender to this Jesus. You want to hold on to this sin. You want to continue to enter in this path. You want to continue to come and show up and fake it. I will let you fully turn over into I'm not, it's not God giving you something bad because he wants to punish you and kill you. It's God letting you have what you think you want that's actually not as good as him. And it's God in, in, in humble submission as a father who's not gonna break your leg and, and, and put you into a sleeper hold and make you wake up in heaven one day. It's God going, true love has to be love that you choose. And I can't choose to, I'm not gonna make you love me. I'm not gonna make you believe in me. And he comes to this place where 
the only thing that I know for sure that Hebrew 6 is telling us is that there in fact is a line that you can cross and there's no one crossing that line. And this is where we've gotta be people who sit back and go, well, where am I then? To look at our own lives and go, is the fruit of faith on display in my life? Have I gotten cold and hard-hearted with the things of God and they don't cut me to the core like they used to? I can't remember the last time I crumbled under the weight of my sin and just felt the brokenness of how far I've fallen short of Jesus. And am I in danger of, of having this faith that I thought was real, but it actually is not real because it's not persevering. It's something that, you know, if, if somebody hit me with the right little argument on the right little day, I probably would walk away. And so we come back to where we started through this whole book of Hebrews. This pastor's message has been my message to you. Faith that is saving, faith that you can rest in full assurance of is faith that is persevering. And don't miss, please don't miss the connection between repentant faith and persevering faith. The more that you walk with Jesus, the more your mind should be changing about so many things. My mind has changed about politics. My mind has changed about gender. My mind has changed about equality. My mind has changed about my role as a husband. My mind has changed about people from different nationalities. My mind has changed about grace. My mind has changed about punishment. My mind has changed about the unborn. My mind has changed about so many things. These are the things that are supposed to happen when we start to follow Jesus. Our minds change. Metanoia happens as the gospel transforms us from the inside. And if you look at your life from before you started following Jesus to who you are now, maybe somebody who's been following Jesus for so many years and you go, my mind hasn't changed about anything. All the same things I believed here are all the same things I believe now. Maybe you have not met him because repentance, metanoia, deep inward change, at least a deep outward change is not evident in our life. So if this faith that we want, this faith that we cling to is to be one that perseveres, my hope and my prayer is that you know this, there is only one thing that will motivate you to persevere. And friend, it is not guilt, it is grace. Some of you, the only change, or the only, <laughs> the only spiritual momentum that's ever been created in your life has been guilt-induced. You did something really bad, you felt really guilty and you're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm never going to that bar again or I'm never looking at that again. I'm never gonna, and all of those things were just motivated and rooted in guilt. But friend, I, the whole reason I showed you Judas and Peter is to help you understand that the guilt motivated quote unquote spiritual things that you do could still send you to hell. If you're not, what you're doing there is you're repenting to yourself because you let yourself down and you can't feel good about yourself anymore because you feel like your sins are too bad. Instead go, I'm not gonna come repent to myself because I didn't live up to my standard and I don't feel good about myself. Instead, I'm going to Jesus. And I'm going as the younger brother in the story to the prodigal father who says, I am in desperate need of grace. And my prayer is that you look at these stories and you see Judas out of guilt, go to religious leaders. And I'm telling you, that's where religion will always lead you. Religion will always hump guilt and shame and blame on you and you will cave under the pressure of religion until you find a grace-filled relationship with Jesus. And I pray that as you look at the life of Peter, you see that as his story. You see him going from a guy who is terrified when a middle school girl is asking if you know Jesus to a guy who at his deathbed moment saying, crucify me upside down. I don't deserve to go out the way my savior went out. That's persevering faith. And he did not get there because he was motivated by guilt. He got there because he was motivated by grace. And so last thing I'll say to you, if his grace is sufficient to save you, his grace is sufficient to sustain you. And that's what communion is all about. Another word that we give, we don't talk about it a whole lot, but we give when we talk about food is food is sustenance. Same root there that we have in sustain. If you don't have food, you will not be sustained in living. It is necessary 
for life, which is why I believe Jesus instituted this thing called communion. Every single Sunday we do this here at MCC on purpose as a weekly reminder that this body broken for me, that this blood poured out for me is what sustains my life. The grace that is displayed in this was sufficient to save me, but this faith that was started at salvation is working its place through into sanctification. And so I need this grace even more now to sustain me as I walk through trial, trouble, and even the valley of the shadow of death. So as you commune with him today, I pray that you see him for who he really is. Some of you today, maybe you need to really repent for the very first time and beg Jesus to help you, to cleanse you, to wash you and make you white as snow. Some of you need to go into the waters of baptism and be fully forgiven of your sins and be raised up new creation to have an outward exemplification of the inward change that has actually happened in your heart. And if that's you and you wanna give your life to Christ, you wanna be baptized, I'll be right up here afterwards. I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can mark it on one of those next step cards as well, but don't wait. Let God's grace motivate you to the step you know you need to take today. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Thank you for being who you are to us. We thank you for never changing. Despite we, despite our wondering, despite our straying away from you, you continue to pull in and pursue us as wayward children. And I pray that we're drawn to you today, Lord. We have no hope without you, but draw us. For many in this room, you have saved. Those you have saved, I pray you sustain. And for some of this, some of this room, there are people who have not yet been saved. I pray your grace opens their heart to receive the full grace of salvation today.